What's your name? Ken Levine. What did you do between 2008 and 2010? I was the co-host of Dodger Talk with Josh Sushan on KABC Los Angeles. I don't know what ever happened to him. I haven't seen him in a couple of years. What are you doing these days? <laughs> I'm self-quarantined. I'm, I'm watching a lot of Jeopardy and still not getting any smarter. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we're getting the band back together. Ken Levine and I had a lot of fun as the co-host of Post Game Dodger Talk. Ken is one of the most uniquely talented people I've ever met. In order to give his full resume, it would take a really long time, but he has written, produced, directed a very wide variety of TV shows, movies, at plays, then at age 40, he decided that he wanted to become a baseball play-by-play -play announcer. And lo and behold, that's exactly what he did. He's a blogger. He's a podcaster. So let's get to it. Ken Levine, he's basically my radio dad. And he is today's <laughs> guest on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. <laughs> and you were once uh, a Leave it to Beaver character in one of your other jobs. Yeah, to 40 DJ. Yeah, back in the 70s, and I used the name Beaver Cleaver. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted a name that was easy for people to remember and also rather suggestive. <laughs> I got a lot of mileage out of it. And you're still getting mileage sued. out of it to this day. Yeah. All right. So Beto Duran always reminds me, get to the point immediately, Sushan, get to the point. Um, there's so many different things that we can talk about from your life and your career. But since the, um, in theory, the point of this podcast is baseball on and off the field and sort of the intersection of culture and our lives in baseball, I wanted to talk about some of the writing assignments that you have had that have involved sports. And so I want to start with cheers. And I want to start with an episode titled The Boys in the Bar. This was season one of Cheers, episode 16. It first aired on January 27th, 1983. And this is an episode that was very much ahead of its time. Sam Malone publicly supported an old teammate who had come out of the closet. Norm and the rest of the guys were afraid that Cheers would become a gay bar. What was the inspiration for this episode? Well, the inspiration was Glenn Burke, who was a ball player with the Dodgers and, and Oakland, and later did come out as, as being gay. And so I thought, well, it would be interesting if Sam Malone's roommate has a book and comes out with the fact that he's gay, 
and Sam has to decide whether or not to still support him if there is the risk that he might lose customers and that the bar might go gay. It seemed like uh, a good idea for, for an episode. But yeah, it was sort of politically charged. And uh, a funny story, we, we wrote the script and when we go into production, we always start with a table reading where the cast sits around a table and reads the script out loud. And it's the first time that we hear it and we get a chance to see whether or not it works or whether or not jokes fall flat, that sort of thing. And as a table reading goes, it was okay. It was, it was fine. It was not a disaster. It was not through the roof. And we're walking out and Ted Danson says to me, don't change a word. And I turn to him and I say, hey, screw you, man. We tried for something, okay? He goes, no, no, I mean, seriously, don't change a word. It's, it's great. And I was like, yeah, I really know how to take a compliment, don't I? <laughs> Again, this is such a different time, 1983. This is before Cheers was an iconic show. It was the first season. What did the network think? What, I mean, give us some of the other political fallout that was going on at the time with this episode. Well, the network actually didn't give us uh, a whole lot of flack. Um, I mean, looking back at it, you know, we're making several of our regular characters basically assholes. <laughs> you know, that Norman Cliff and all these, you know, bar patrons are all behind this movement because part of the episode is they think there are a couple of gay guys in the bar and they try to chase them out. And it's, it's something you could never do after a couple of years because Norman Cliff were all beloved and you just wouldn't have the Cheers gang doing that. But it was the first year we were still experimenting with the show. And um, so we didn't get an awful lot of flack. I'm actually getting more flack now for the show. And, and I find that really interesting. At the time we wrote that, we ended up with an Emmy nomination for best script. We won the Writers Guild Award that year for the best comedy script. And we won the GLAAD Award, which is the Gay Lesbian Image Award. We won for that episode. And today, People are saying they should take it off the air. It's insensitive. You know, the LGBT uh, world is, is going to hate you. They're, they're going to find this real offensive. And I go, we won an award from you people. <laughs> For the same show. This question is sort of a, a general question about writing episodes of Cheers, but I think it fits for this episode too. How often would... The, uh, the, the creators say, okay, you and David Isaacs, you go just write this episode. How much would you pitch? Hey, we have this idea. And then you pitch it to the room. Or, and how much was it? Okay, we need to, we need to advance the, the, the Sam Diane plot. Can you advance that plot within this kind of standalone episode? What can you tell us about those different dynamics? Well, it's pretty much, as you said, I mean, we would come in with an idea or sometimes somebody else would have an idea and uh, they would say, are you guys free to write it? And with the group, 
the, the writing staff, we would work out a story. Now, when Cheers began, the writing staff was me and my partner, David Isaacs, and Glenn and Les Charles. There were just the four of us. That's it. Okay. By, by year 11, you needed to get there early to get a seat in the room. There were like 14 writers. But in the early years, it was really just the four of us. And we would work out the story. And then the writer, if in our case, it would be me and David, would go off and write an outline, like a six or seven page detailed outline of what the scenes are going to be. You bring that in and that gets discussed and tweaked. And then we go off and, and write a script. And yeah, the first year of Cheers, you know, again, we were experimenting with different things. You see an early episode where it's kind of like Barney Miller, where we have interesting, colorful people come into the bar and we do stories with them. We thought, well, maybe that would work. And then we saw it and we said, no, that sucked. The one thing that we saw was our money was Sam and Diane. And I remember Jim Burroughs, the director, coming up to the office one day early in the run and saying, that's your money, boys. Sam and Diane is your money. And so even if we did a standalone show like Boys in the Bar, yes, in coming up with the story, we would make sure, even if it was just a one-page run, to keep the Sam and Diane thing alive through the course of that season. And then through later seasons, usually there was a, a season arc where you'd say, okay, at the beginning, um, Sam and Diane are here in their relationship. And by the end of the season, we want them to be here with the relationship. And we would just kind of write throughout the season to slowly get there. All right. There's so many more questions that I can ask about just that episode, but I want to move on to a few of the other um, episodes. When I was going through your IMDb and I was just thinking about my all time favorite episodes of Cheers. And then I realized how many of them you actually wrote. <laughs> and another one is I on sports. This was season six. It first aired October 1st of 1987. And this is when Dave Richards is looking for a replacement television sportscaster. He thinks that Sam would be the perfect fit. And well, as it turns out, Sam really struggled coming up with the different sports commentaries that he needed to do each night. So tell us about the background of that episode. Well, that is an episode where uh, I came up with the idea, and it stems from the fact, especially back then, when local TV sportscasters all seem to have some shtick. You know, we have Vic the Brick Jacobs, and they are throwing their bricks and different stupid things, and, and I would always just be screaming at the screen, just tell the scores. I just want to know what the scores are, especially back then when you didn't have the internet and you needed to watch TV. I say, I don't want to hear these clowns. Just tell me for my fantasy baseball team, whether the goddamn Texas Rangers lost or not. <laughs> and um, so I thought, well, this would be fun that Sam gets thrown into that situation and is told that he needs a gimmick and he tries out different gimmicks, uh, you know, being the angry guy, uh, having the, 
you know, the commentary. Uh, and we decided, well, let's really go far with this, where Sam had a puppet. <laughs> and one of the other things, this was the early days of, of rap music. We thought, well, what if Sam, like, tries to rap his, uh, his sports cast? And interestingly, we just thought that's one of a series of things. But that particular segment and him doing the rap and gr 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 groin injury, uh, that, that like caught on. <laughs> that caught on and I think that's the thing that most people remember about that episode. I, I'm one of those. Every time that I hear a manager say that, yeah, he's out with a groin injury, I think a gr 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 groin injury. <laughs> yeah, I start singing like, like Sam Malone did. And he was great, wasn't he? Yeah. He did that great. <laughs> okay, next one I want to ask you about is Bar Wars number one. And this was season six. It first aired on March 31st of 1988. And in this one, Rebecca and Gary came to a truce, but then the ceasefire ends and things go back and forth. And then the next thing you know, Gary decides that he's going to send Wade Boggs over to Cheers in order to sign some autographs. But the gang at Cheers doesn't think that that's really Wade Boggs who is in the bar because they suspect that Gary is trying to prank them again. First of all, if Wade Boggs does not agree to this, do you still do the episode or do you just keep trying to find other members of the Boston Red Sox who agree to this episode? Well, there's a lot of stories behind this episode. And the first story is that this was the end of the season. This was the last episode of the year. And NBC added this episode at the last minute. So um, David and I, who write very quickly, were told, uh, you know, would you guys, if you, if you do this, you have to write it over the weekend, okay? Because it will go to the table on Wednesday. And we said, okay. So we met with Glenn and Les to work out the story and the story we all came up with was practical joke wars between Gary and Gary's Old Town Tavern and Cheers. And one of the things we thought was, well, wouldn't it be great to have a sports hero of the day from Boston walk into the bar and have the guys think that it's an imposter and pants him and take his wallet? And we said, well, okay, at the time, the most popular Boston athlete was probably Wade Boggs. So we said, well, let's see if we can get Wade Boggs. And I said, it's like the beginning of March. He's in Winter Haven. He's in spring training. Not going to get Wade Boggs. And they said, well, let us try. Let us try. And 20 minutes later, our casting director calls and says, okay, you got him. His manager said, you know, he can be away for like three days. He'll fly in uh, Wednesday morning. He'll pre-shoot with you on Thursday, and then he'll fly back on Friday. And, and like, I'm thinking like, wow. This is pretty cool. I just conjure up Wade Boggs, and, and there he is. Okay, well, 
there's more to that story. So he shows up. And then a couple of years later, Playboy magazine has a big expose from this woman, Margot Adams, who was Wade Boggs' mistress. And she lived in Anaheim. So she has this whole article and about being Wade Boggs' mistress. And she talks about that episode. And she says, one day in March, she gets a call from Wade saying, hey, I just got a free trip out to LA. I'm doing some stupid TV show. <laughs> and we can get together for like another two nights. <laughs> like, great. So now I'm realizing, no, that's not why he came, because I conjured him up or the chance to be on Cheers. It was to get laid with his mistress a couple of times. So she also says in the article that, um, that Wade asked her for a pair of panties because Wade bet the guys on the team that he could come back with a pair of Kirstie Alley's panties. Okay? So again, okay. this is in the article. Okay. So I'm, I'm in the office. It's like 9.15. I'm reading this article. And I go, what time does the cast arrive on the set today? So they should be coming in like around 9.30. I said, okay, great. And I took the magazine and I went down to the stage and there's Kirsty sitting, you know, having a cup of coffee. And I said, hey, Kirsty, you're mentioned in an article in Playboy. <laughs> she goes, what? <laughs> and I showed her the magazine. I said, here. And, uh, and she re reads it and, and just goes, what the F? <laughs> and so it became kind of a running joke with me and Kirsty for the remainder of the run of Cheers that like once a year I would come up to her and I would say, Kirsty, listen, uh, could you do me a favor? I'm going to my 20th high school reunion this Saturday night and at graduation I bet the guys that I could get a pair of Kirsty Alley's panties. <laughs> <laughs> so what would she say? Oh, she laughed. Yeah, she was really cool. She was, she was a lot of fun. She was a, a really good sport. So, so that's one story. And the other story about that episode is we wrote over the weekend and figured, okay, on Monday, the staff will all polish it and it'll be ready to go on Wednesday. Well, on Sunday night, the Writers Guild decided to go on strike. Okay, we wow. were told that negotiations were still continuing and uh, we're okay. Well, the negotiations blew up that Sunday. And as of midnight, the, the Writers Guild was on strike. Well, we were able to turn in the script. And the rule was, if there was a script that the studio had, you could shoot it but you can't rewrite it. You have to shoot it as is. So 
that episode was our first draft. It was literally our first draft that we did in two days. And uh, it was the scariest night when it was actually filmed because I'm thinking, okay, now I'm going to be discovered as a fraud. You know, uh, and so I was really pleased with how well it came out ultimately because I thought it came out pretty well. But uh, in the back of my mind, I'm still going, uh, it could still be better. There's there's still jokes and things that we could improve. But that's still uh, pretty darn good for one for one draft. I mean, yeah, that's extremely for, good. Yeah, exactly. We 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 lucked out and and that became such a hit that episode that it kind of started a trend and uh, every year David and I would do another Bar Wars episode that would up the stakes. And you also continued to do episodes in which there were professional athletes who made cameos. Yeah. So you did one called Where Have All the Floorboards Gone in 1991. And this one is... Uh, the basic plot is that it's Norm's birthday and he gets a Boston Celtics jacket. It is delivered by Kevin McHale. And then Kevin McHale starts talking to Norman Cliff about the number of bolts that are in the, uh, the Boston Garden Parquet floor. And then no one knows the answer. And Kevin gets obsessed with this and his performance starts to go down the drain <laughs> because he's counting uh, the number of bolts instead of playing basketball. <laughs> Was it any easier to get Kevin McHale <laughs> than Wade Boggs? Uh, it was easy to get Kevin McHale. And what's interesting about Kevin, for me, growing up in L.A., especially in the mid-'80s during the Showtime Lakers, um, I was a huge Laker fan. I hated the Celtics, and especially Kevin McHale. You know, just that cheap shot against Kurt Rambis and we don't forget, you know, and we always hated Kevin McHale and Kevin McHale comes on the set. He is the nicest guy ever. And he's also really funny. He's so good that we wrote him more stuff in the episode and we brought him back for another episode because he was so good. And and now I'm a huge Kevin McHale fan. And what was fun is we got to go back to Boston for them to shoot some scenes there. And, um, and Kevin let us come to a shoot around and got us tickets to the garden. And it's like, I love this guy. <laughs> now, by that point, that's season 10. And so by, by then, I mean, that's when Cheers is just iconic status. So I would think that the doors were literally opening up a lot easier for a lot of different things that you wanted to do like this? Yeah. Um, some, sometimes. Uh, oh, I have one more Bar Wars story. Okay. Please okay. tell. R reminded me. Um, and this goes back to my minor league baseball days. Okay. So I'm announcing for the Tidewater Tides. This is 1990. And we're the AAA affiliate of the New York Mets. And uh, we're playing a day game at home in Tidewater. And our next opponent were the Columbus Clippers. And they were our hated rivals because they were the Yankee team. Okay. They also had a much nicer stadium than us. 
and they usually beat us. Same way with the Yankees and Mets. So, so, um, excuse me, they had a day game in Richmond and we had an evening game, like a six o'clock game in Tidewater. So one of the commercials that I had, one of the, you know, drop-ins was for the days in and military circle, the official home of the International League. And I said, you know, the Columbus Clippers are coming in to begin a three-game series tomorrow night, and they should be getting in uh, late tonight from Richmond. Um, why don't you call them 5 o'clock in the morning and welcome them to Tidewater? Okay? <laughs> so, yeah, I think, who listens to these broadcasts? I didn't think much of this. So, next day, I show up at the ballpark, and and Terry Smith, who was the Columbus announcer, now with the Angels, comes up to me and goes, whoa, what did you do? What did you do? And I, what are you talking about? He says, all the players started getting woken up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I went, really? It worked. <laughs> How awesome is that? That's fantastic. And he said, oh, the players aren't that pleased. And I go, okay. So uh, Bucky Dent was, was their manager. So I was like, all right, I'll, you know, fall on the grenade. Um, I went down to the uh, clubhouse and, and I knocked on his door and I apologize for what I did. I, said, I never thought anybody would actually do it and stuff like that. And he goes, um, and he goes yeah, when we were, we were driving over, he says, I was listening to you. And he said, I actually thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> he goes, and it, it might, you know, stir up the team a little, which it did. They beat the crap out of the tides. <laughs> but um, but I, I walked into the uh, into their clubhouse, and their trainer was livid. Their trainer was just livid. He was like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get back at you. MF, and you know, we're coming into Columbus next week, and I, I'm, I'm going to get you. And I said to him, um, do you ever watch Cheers? And he goes, yeah. I said, you ever watch those Bar Wars episode with the Practical Joke Wars with Gary's Old Town Tavern? And he goes, yeah. I said, I wrote those, MF. <laughs> you want to get into a Practical Joke War with me? I said, you just bring it on, buddy. He said, I'll tell you what room I'm in at the Ramada Inn when we get there. So needless to say, he backed off. <laughs> of all the people, of course, the trainer's the one who's most livid. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, minor leaguers were not using aliases for their hotel rooms in the late 80s. <laughs> no, no. Are, are, are minor league players using aliases? Not now? in 2019, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, all right. I love it. Um, okay, so um, let's go ahead and talk about your minor league career. Um, so what age were you when you decided that you wanted to add baseball play-by-play? -play? Was it age 40? No, it was actually age 35, 36. Um, I had always wanted to be a baseball announcer from the time – I first heard Vin Scully 
come and do the Dodgers in 1958. <clears throat> I was one years old. No, I wasn't. <laughs> uh, and um, it was like 1985, and I'm now a successful television comedy writer and a friend of mine from um from college did go on to take the play-by-play -play route and for a number of years he was the voice of the albuquerque dukes name is david glass and dave glass then became one of the announcers for the Giants. So I'm sure you know Dave Glass. Yeah, I remember listening to him as a kid. And, um, and so I went to a Dodger game, and there was a Dodger-Giant game, and Dave and I were going to get together and get drinks after the game. And I'm sitting in the stands, and I look up, and there he is in the press box, you know, in the booth right next to Vince Scully. He's got a microphone, and, you know, Hank Greenwald is sitting next to him. He's like, oh, my God, the guy did it. The guy did it. And, um, <laughs> and so I had just finished uh, a year creating a, a series for Mary Tyler Moore, and I had some time on my hands, and I decided if I don't pursue it now, I never will. And I went to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder and sat in the upper deck because it was general admission and the seats weren't reserved, and I figured if you don't want some idiot announcing the game, you just get up and move to a different section. If somebody is paying good money for field boxes, they don't want some idiot going, there's a drive to deep left field, sitting next to them. So, um, so that's what I would do, and I would record the games, and I uh, would go to Anaheim Stadium, and, um, and I, I did that for two years. And then... Um, I, I did uh, a couple of games, the Angels-Boston National League Championship Series in 1986. One of my all-time favorite playoff series. Yeah. series. yeah. No, it wasn't the, the Henderson game, though. Okay. It was the game where the Angels won. And it was like 60,000 people, great crowd sounds. The Angels were rallying. I had a great inning. I had a great inning. And, uh, and I was told that's how you get a job, you submit, you submit an inning. And, um, and so after 87, I said to my wife, uh, and at the time we were back on Cheers, we were writing for Cheers and consulting on Cheers and pilots, and I was consulting on Wings. And I said, wouldn't it be fun to spend a bucolic summer being in some cool, small town while I do minor league baseball. And she kind of like, you know, okay. And I gave her a list of all the minor league cities, like 120 of them. And I said, you just check off the places that you wouldn't mind going to. And those are the only places that I'll send my tape. She checked off 20. I was hoping it was like 50, <laughs> okay? She checked off 20. Um, and one of them was Syracuse, which she thought was going to be like the Berkshires. She thought it was going to be like Tanglewood. <laughs> no, no, salt mines. Uh, but um, I got three offers, um, like Eugene, Oregon in the Northwest League, 
uh, Vero Beach in the Florida League, and Syracuse, which was AAA. They were the Blue Jays affiliate then. And uh, in fact, the, the team owner called and got my wife on the phone, and he said, is he serious? <laughs> She's like, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. So um, uh, I went to Syracuse my first year, 1988, and my partner was Dan Horde. And um, Dan and I are still real good friends today. Dan is now the voice of the Bengals and um, University of Cincinnati football and basketball. And um, like I said, we, we've remained really good, good friends. And he was named the Ohio Sportscaster of the Year this year, by the way. Very proud of him. And um, my wife hated, hated Syracuse. Just hated Syracuse. Basically, she said, look, if I catch you having an affair, we can go to counseling and maybe work it out. You want to come back to Syracuse, I'm getting a divorce. (laughs) Okay. So I was like looking around and as luck would have it, by now, Dave Glass had left the Giants and got a job at Tidewater. And was looking for a partner. <laughs> so I joined Dave and, uh, and I was with Tidewater and I stayed with Tidewater for two years. And then there was a, an opening with the Orioles. And what I had heard was, yeah, you have all these tapes from the minor leagues, but it really helps to have a major league tape because you have good crowd noise and there are players that people know and that sort of thing. So since the minor league season ends around Labor Day and we still have a month, um, I like made an arrangement with the Angels because I knew some people in the Angels where they let me do games from the football press box, which was down the left field line, but I didn't care. And so I would do these games and I would have my temporary press pass. And I met John Miller of the Orioles because the Orioles were playing the uh, – the angels that that night and i just said would you do me a favor and critique my tape from last night which i still just you know had in my uh, bag and he went okay a couple months go by i don't hear anything and i'm in a cheers room and secretary says there's a john miller on the phone for you i'm like huh so i go to the phone and it's like Hi, Ken. Like, oh, shit, it's that John Miller. (laughs) And he listened to my tape and loved it and said, Joe Angel had just left to do the Yankees. Would I be interested in applying for the Orioles job? And I was like, okay, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Let me think about it. Um, So so I, I did. I talked to... Jeff Bochamp, who was the uh, program director of WBAL in Baltimore. And he said, yeah, John uh, is giving me your tape and, uh, you know, said very nice things about you. He says, I want you to send me three innings, three uninterrupted innings where nothing happens. I want to just hear what you sound like when it's not an exciting inning and home runs and triples and stuff like that. And I said, well, for that, I'd have to dip into minor league 
stuff. And he goes, I don't care. And so I did. I gave him three innings and um, they flew me to Baltimore. I was a finalist and, um, and I got the job. And um, so 91, I, I did the Orioles with John and Chuck Thompson, two guys with the most magnificent voices in broadcasting and two guys who are both in the hall of fame <laughs> and me it's like sesame street right one of these things is not like the other one of these things doesn't fit um but I, so i did the orioles and after a year they wanted to give me a three-year deal but they wanted me to move to baltimore which was not an unreasonable request they wanted me there full time so that I could be available for caravans and banquets and to be just part of the community. But I was making 90% of my income in LA as a writer and just couldn't afford to give that up. So I reluctantly left Baltimore. And um, this is a long answer to your question. Um, and uh, I got a call from Dave Niehaus of the Mariners. Um, apparently, one time we were finishing up a road trip. We were in Kansas city and we were going to fly home and start a homestand the next night with Seattle and Seattle had a day game in Milwaukee and got into Baltimore like at six, seven o'clock at night. And as they were taking the bus from the airport to the hotel, Dave Niehaus was listening to the broadcast and heard me. And he came up to me the next night and said, wow, you're really terrific. And I thought, well, that's very flattering. Thank you. But I guess he really meant it because when there was the opening, uh, he called. And so I wound up doing uh, Seattle for three years. Love all of this. <clears throat> all of this is so great. I, I want to circle back to a couple of things. Um, when you first had this idea, did you and your wife have an agreement of how many years you would spend in the minor leagues chasing this dream? No, because it really wasn't a dream I was chasing. I never seriously thought that I could get a job as a major league announcer. So I always thought, okay, this is, this is the, the reward, is the process. To spend a few years just calling baseball, being with a team, traveling, eating Domino's pizza. <laughs> Uh, so, no, I, I never seriously thought that uh, if, if I don't make the majors in five years or six years, all of this will be for naught. Uh, it, it, it was just kind of something to experience. The next question I'm going to ask you, I should have asked the previous question <laughs> because the way it would have worked out a whole lot better. But I was I was watching this stand up comedy special on Netflix last night and there was a quote in there I can't remember who the comedian was but I wrote this down and this was his advice he said as long as you accept that your dream will not go exactly as you planned you will still feel fulfilled by the pursuit of your dream well that's exactly that was exactly my my idea I kept a journal the first year in Syracuse and when I got back um, I said to my agent, what do I do with this? You know, can I get a book? Is somebody going to be interested in the day-to-day -day diary of minor league announcer? And he said, go pitch it as a movie. 
you make a whole lot more money if you pitch it as a movie. So, um, so we did. We, we went and we pitched it to Columbia. Basically, we said, Good Morning Vietnam meets Bull Durham. A TV comedy writer goes off to be a minor league baseball announcer. And they said, sold. And we're sitting in a restaurant with our producer having lunch celebrating when I said, um, what's the story? <laughs> <laughs> what's the story? Well, many drafts later, uh, we finally figured it out. But the first thing, we really had to make it way more fictional. We could use a couple of incidents that happened to me, but we really had to make this way more fictional. And the first thing we needed to do was, you know, give this guy a love interest. So <laughs> we wrote out my wife. <laughs> She's like, what? I spend a year in Syracuse and I get written out of the movie the first week? What? <laughs> anyway, the movie, uh, it's called Play by Play. And uh, it's, it's really good. And it has been sitting in development hell now for many, many years. Well, maybe during this global pandemic, it can be brought out of developmental hell. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, we, we developed it in movie studios, change regimes. So a new regime comes in and immediately throws out everything from the previous regime. And so our movie was kind of on the scrap heap. And uh, a few years later, Director Tom Shadiak had a big hit movie with Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. And he was looking for his next movie. So everybody was giving him piles of screenplays. And the one he liked was Play by Play. So we spent the whole summer with Tom reworking the story and fixing it up. And we did another whole draft and it was ready to go. And uh, he gets a call, hey, the director for Nutty Professor just fell out. Can you step in starting Tuesday? And he was like, how much are you going to pay? Eddie Murphy? I'm there. And that was it. And then our, our project died. Like suddenly it was no longer uh, of any interest to him. And, um, and it sits on the, the scrap heap. That's but we did get paid for it. Oh, at least you got paid. We got paid. Not yeah. the same, but it's, at least you got paid. Right. Who were some of the most interesting characters from Syracuse, whether it's a player or um, a coach or a front office executive? Who stands out about your time in Syracuse? Well, um, we had some pretty wild players. Um, we had David Wells was, was with us. A very young David Wells. Young David Wells. Slimmer David Wells, I would guess. Uh, <laughs> slimmer than he became. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was, no one would mistake him for Audrey Hepburn <laughs> at the time. Um, we had, uh, our, our owner was this lovely guy, Antoine Tex Simone. And uh, Tex critiqued me after my first month. And he goes, Kenny, and you know, 
we, when we only have like a couple hundred people in the stands because it's 22 degrees, don't give the attendance. <laughs> I said, okay, great. What else? He says, that's it. <laughs> but he was like one of these guys that if there was like a, a foul ball that went down the left field line to the empty bleachers, you know, and fell down to the ground, he would go and collect them and take pencil erasers and erase the scuff marks and put the balls back into circulation. <laughs> you walk in his office and there were a thousand boxes of Kellogg's cornflakes. Like, what is this about? Well, I guess it was like a promotion that only had 200 people instead of the 7,000 they expected. And <laughs> so uh, he had all these cereal boxes. Uh, we had Stu Peterson, who's Jock Peterson's dad. Yeah, that was on my, my list of people to ask you about. Yeah. Do you remember about Stu Peterson? Stu Peterson, Stu Peterson was great. We got him the second half of the season, and he was like his son. He was like a home run hitting machine. He had barely a cup of coffee in, in the majors. But, um, yeah, but, but he, was, he was really great. Um, I'm trying to think of other characters. Um, I saw that Geronimo Barroa and Todd Stottlemyre were on the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I remember about Todd Stottlemyre is that we had another pitcher, Jack O'Connor, and we were sitting in the Pittsburgh airport where we spent much time because Pittsburgh was the hub of the airline that we took. And, uh, and Todd had mentioned that he was going to play winter ball in Venezuela. And Jack O'Connor said, oh, I played winter ball last year and proceeded to scare the crap out of Todd with these stories of just wild gunfights and just <laughs> brawls and, you know, and like Todd was like absolutely petrified. And you know, and Jack says, well, have a good time. And it was time for our flight. <laughs> time for our flight. Another character we had who was a player coach was pitcher Bob Shirley. Remember Bob Shirley? Not Bob Stanley. And not, no, but mm -mm. Bob Shirley. Okay. And he was, he was still being paid by the, uh, the Yankees. He still had like a Yankee deal. And <laughs> we couldn't do this today. You know, we were taking commercial flights on um, Northwest. And <laughs> we'd be up in the air. And he would like just suddenly yell out, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. <laughs> Definitely cannot do that nowadays. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, he was, he was a bit of a character. And this was a coach or a player coach. Yeah, yeah. We had a pitcher, Colin McLaughlin, who was the, the slowest pitcher on the mound. I mean, you talk about Vicente Padilla and some other pitchers who take time this guy would routinely clean his glasses between pitches. 
And we had a second baseman, Eric Yelding, who just would run up to him, just in the mouth, pitch, just, just pitch, just throw the ball, just pitch. <laughs> and of course, when you have very few people in the stands, the audience hears it. Right. The audience is like applauding. They're applauding a meeting on the mound, <laughs> telling this pitcher to pitch. <laughs> I'm, lo I'm looking at the 1989 Tidewater Tides, and looks like Gary Carter was on a rehab assignment. Yes, he was. What do you remember about that? The greatest pregame guest ever. You just go, so Gary, welcome to Tidewater. Five minutes later, you say, that was Gary Carter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had, we had Gary Carter. We had. Uh, Greg Jeffries on that team for a while. Uh, we had Kevin Tappany before they traded him away. For, yeah, Kevin uh, Tappany and David West were on the team that and got traded mm -hmm. for Frank Viola. Yeah, yeah, that happened. That happened midway through the season. Um, we had we had a player uh, named Darren Reed, and I he went up to the Mets for a couple of minutes. But I would write cheer scripts while on the road. And I was sitting on the plane with my laptop, and I was writing a Cheers episode. And Darren came down the aisle and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing a, an episode of Cheers. He goes, well, put me in it. And I'm like, OK. So I found a place to bring in a ball player and named him Dave, Darren Reed. And um, so there he is. Which episode was this? What was his part? Uh, it was an episode where, I think it was the episode where, um, where Carla's husband dies. And uh, yeah, he comes in and she wants to have an affair with him, but, but doesn't. He's only in for, uh, for one brief scene. But, uh, yeah, like, you know, uh, I wrote the baseball episode uh, along with my partner, David Isaacs, uh, baseball episode of The Simpsons, Dance and Homer, which you know very well. Because yes. We named the isotopes. Uh, but my, uh, my name, I was the minor league announcer, and I used the name Dan Horde, who was my partner in Syracuse. And then for the announcer for the Capital City Capitals, I used David Glass. I used his name. And uh, I used uh, Tex Simone's name and Dave Rosenfield's name. They were the, the owners of the two teams I worked with. So uh, a lot of shout outs to, uh, to people from my minor league days. I can tell you that anyone who has ever been given a tour at Beautiful Isotopes Park by yours truly definitely knows the full story of, <laughs> hungry, of, of, uh, of Dance and Homer and how the isotopes were named and all the different statues of all the Simpsons characters that we have around our ballpark. There, there's Homer right there. I'm, that, I'm holding up a Dancing Homer doll. <laughs> when it came to that episode, let's since you brought that up, did the Simpsons come to you or did you and David go to them and say, Hey, we have this idea. Obviously it's based on your time in the minor leagues who initiated the conversation. They did. Sam Simon, who was the uh, showrunner of the Simpsons 
um, came to us. And the Simpsons really had, had just started. So they were not necessarily the huge phenomenon that they became. And, um, and they were still paying Saturday morning cartoon money, which is a fraction of what a normal half hour is, fraction of what they get now. And we knew Sam Simon, worked with him on other things, and he said, you know, would we do it as a favor? And he actually he called the house and he got my wife, and he said, uh, you know, my kids were little then, he says, we'll give them toys, we'll give them jackets. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's what, what we did. And uh, it was fun because I got to be a voice and I'm an amateur cartoonist. So I designed the Capital City Goofball. <laughs> that was really fun to draw a sketch. And then, wow, there it is, fully animated. So that was fun. We ended up doing two episodes of The Simpsons. Let me ask you a little bit more about Dancing Homer. So in case people aren't familiar, the, 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 the overall plot, by the way, my favorite line, I was researching this again yesterday. The, 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 the night that they go to at the ballpark is nuclear plant employee spouses and no more than three children night. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many little things that we did and, and they, they, they did them. Uh, like we have in the outfield, you know, like Springfield Savings safe from 1941 to 1972, 1974 to today. <laughs> and I think we have like some mortuary where hit the sign and win a free coffin. <laughs> so, so in the episode, Homer goes and he starts dancing and the isotopes are on this long losing streak and they win. And then Homer becomes the mascot and they go on a winning streak. And then Homer gets promoted to the major leagues where his small town act uh, totally flops and he gets fired. Um, was there any, do you remember the crazy crab in San Francisco and how much inspiration was the crazy crab part of the Simpsons episode at all? Oh, the crazy crab was a, a major part. <laughs> yeah. That was like a, a major part. And also um, the, Toledo Mud Hen. They had this sad looking character as the Toledo Mud Hen and would like walk around with this limp bat and people would spit on it and throw things and like, <laughs> this, is, this is so depressing. And you'd see the guy up in the press box by like the fourth inning with the hat off, just pounding down beers. <laughs> So, so those were, those were our two uh, inspirations. Oh my goodness. I love it. Uh, I'm just totally going to just start bouncing all over the place. Any semblance of a, of a, of a, of a plot line here for this is out the window, which is the way that it should be. It's like a typical Dodger talk, which is, which is ideal. <laughs> this is like Dodger talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the, you wrote a play about a press box, but that was originally a pilot episode, if I recall. Yes. Give us the background of, of, this, uh, of, of what you intended to be originally a TV show. Well, um, having spent time you know, in various press boxes, um, you, know, you get to know these, these characters 
who are the reporters. And especially when you and I were doing Dodger Talk, our seats in the press box was right in the middle of the press section. So pain in the ass to get to them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, you know, they're, they're very colorful. And I thought, well, this would be an interesting idea for a multi-camera show because it's a simple set. It's just one set, like two, you know, layers of the press box. And, um, and I wrote it as a half hour and, uh, tried to, came very close actually to selling it to ESPN. And ESPN might do it as, uh, you know, an original scripted show. And, um, and that didn't happen. Um, we also came sort of close to HBO. Um, the networks weren't interested because they figured, nah, it's just too male centric. Um, you know, we don't want to do this. Um, and um, and then uh, a few years ago, I was looking for an idea to do a play. And I started with the idea, basically with the theme, which was our need to be remembered. And um, And I thought, okay, that's sort of an interesting theme. What venue can I put that in? And I thought, well, baseball, where the past is cherished even more than the present and you know the need to be remembered through statistics etc and so i thought well you know what maybe i can expand my um my half hour tv pilot and i did i wrote a 90 minute play how many lines from my pilot do you think actually survived and made it into the play I feel like this number is either going to be really um high or really low i'm going to take low i'm going to say three. Oh, you're too high <laughs> <laughs> you're too high i think there's one line that that survived i changed the characters i changed the plot i i changed everything but it's fun it's been done in um three three places los angeles um grand rapids and Indianapolis. This is kind of an inside writer's question, but what you just said speaks to the importance of being willing to throw away an idea and come up with a totally different idea that's very loosely resembling the first one and how hard that is for a lot of people to do, but how necessary it is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have an expression, you have to kill your babies, (laughs) you know, that, uh, you go a certain way with a story and you realize there's a better path. There's a better way of going. Well, that means you're going to have to throw out three scenes. Well, there were some really good jokes that you liked in those three scenes. Lose them. They're gone. They're gone. You'll have ultimately a better show. And if you try to shoehorn those jokes in the other scenes, uh, it, it really doesn't work. And you do have to be um, amenable to to changing and rewriting. And, you know, I really, I learned that from Neil Simon because as great as Neil Simon plays are, that guy rewrote just relentlessly, night after night after night during previews. 
And that's what I do during uh, rehearsals of my plays. I'll, I'll go to the rehearsals and I'll come back the next day with new lines, changes, throw out scenes, add things, that, that sort of thing. Um, just makes it better. Do you ever keep a file, whether it's written down or on your computer, of <laughs> jokes that I really liked that I had to throw away? The, the, like, do you, do you keep all the dead babies in one location in case you need one of them one day? Well, I have separate dead baby locations <laughs> for each project. <laughs> uh, I do keep a discard file. So if there's something that I take out, I put it in the discard file. And every so often, you know, you'll go back and you'll go, hmm, you know what? Uh, I think I can make that thing work here. Didn't work there. I think I can make it work here. And, and I have it. 95% of the time, no. But yeah, I do have discard files. And we used to, on Cheers, uh, do that, where if there were jokes that we liked that we had to cut for whatever reason, we had what we called the SOS file, some other show. <laughs> did, you, did you ever have a list of all of the jokes for Norm entering the bar in like one place in case we need them on, 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 on demand? No. Well, because we also tried never to do the same ones twice, but uh, they were a bitch <laughs> to do. And we had an episode that David and I wrote and this was our own fault because we came up with this idea that um, Frazier brings the baby to Cheers and Lilith is worried that she's not a good mother, that the baby hasn't spoken yet, and so maybe Frazier should take the baby. So Frazier takes the baby to the bar. And we set up that there's now parking meters on the common. And so Norm has to go out like every hour and feed the meter. And of course, every time he comes in, we have to do another Norm entrance. <laughs> so we had to do like five Norm entrances. But at the end of the show, the payoff is where Lilith comes in and sees that Frazier has the baby in the bar and she's appalled what a horrible influence this bar is on their baby. And Norm walks in and the baby goes, Norm. <laughs> <laughs> baby's first word is norm which got like a five minute laugh but in order to set it up we had to do all those norm entrances and as we're writing the script we were just going we are such assholes <laughs> we have no one to blame but ourselves what were we thinking with this the payoff is worth it, though, because it's it just, I mean, that's, that's, a, it, that's an iconic episode. It was. But our fear was if that didn't get a huge laugh, we've built an entire episode for one joke that didn't work. <laughs> that's writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we, we did that, um, and, um, and I'm very proud of it. I said, okay, bucket list check. I'm never going to do that again. I'm just going to give you some of the names of other people who you've interacted with and all of your different facets of life. You did some time broadcasting the San Diego Padres. Tell me some Jerry Coleman stories. Oh, Jerry was great. Um, you know, you'd, you'd be in the car with Jerry, and I would, like, drive him around, 
and he's telling Joe DiMaggio stories. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm in the car with, with Jerry Coleman. And when my son was bar mitzvahed, we, uh, we had his bar mitzvah party at the stadium club at Dodger Stadium. This was in November during the off season. And, um, and I invited the um, announcers to my partners, you know, in the Padres to come. First, Jerry calls and he gets my wife and he goes, I don't think I'm going to be able to make your son's young kipper. <laughs> <laughs> but he did make it. And my wife's relatives are all from New York. And it's like, oh, my God, Jerry Coleman. Jerry Coleman was a god. We would go into New York. We'd go into Shea Stadium. And the, the press box crew and everybody, it just, he, was, he was a god. And um, just the nicest guy. The malaprops, the malaprops are the, um, my favorite when I was with him was we were in Houston and I'm sitting next to him. He's calling the play by play and there's a foul ball that goes straight up over our heads into the upper deck. And he misjudged it initially. And this was his call. There's a swing and a fly ball to center field foul. <laughs> was he self-conscious about his malaprops did it did it bother him especially when other people would tell the stories about them or could it he... would, yeah it would bother him a little bit when there were articles in the paper and stuff but 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 that was jerry that was jerry he was he was a great guy let me tell a quick jerry coleman story if you don't mind sure your podcast. <laughs> it's, you can do uh, laundry if you want. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm out in Yuma, Arizona, on assignment for the Daily Aztec, uh -huh. and I'm basically writing a story about how the Padres are moving their spring training facility from Yuma to Peoria. And I see Jerry Coleman. And I don't know any better. So I just walk up to him and say hello and introduce myself and ask if I can talk to him. And Jerry being the, the gentleman that he is, is like, yeah, absolutely. Let's walk over here. So we have some privacy. So we sit down in the dugout of some backfield there in Yuma, Arizona. And I told him that I was a writer for the daily Aztec, but what I really wanted to do was get into broadcasting and I didn't know how I could transition into it. And, and I asked if he had any advice for me for how I could do this. And I'll never forget, Jerry said that what I was doing at that time as a writer was very helpful and it was going to pay off in the long run because he said that words are the most valuable commodity that you have as a broadcaster. And if you're learning how to use your words as a writer, when you can take your time and you can properly put together a sentence without worrying about making a mistake on the air, you can go back and you can delete it. And if you're learning how to research and you're learning how to interview people, then all of those skills will transition at some point in your life. And I remember thinking, wow, like this is incredible. Like, and I remember just being really relieved when he told me that. And it took me a really long time before I finally <laughs> made the transition from writer to broadcaster. Let's see, that would have been 
I think that was either 92 or 93. And I made the transition in 2007. <laughs> so it took me a really long time, but I'll never forget that advice from Jerry Coleman. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would have been, that would have been 92 because we then shared Peoria starting in 93. God, Yuma was a dump. Right. Oh my God. We would go in there to play spring training games. Oh God. It was just terrible. Uh, do you have any uh, stories that involve not just Tony Gwynn, but Chris <laughs> and Tony Gwynn together from their year together when you were there? What I remember about Chris was him getting that big hit that won the, uh, won the division for San Diego over the Dodgers. And, um, and Kevin Towers and I, were he was the general manager he and I were alone in the clubhouse because had they won I was going to do the the tv interviews and um and Greg Vaughn came up in this big pressure situation and and Kevin Towers is yelling he says come on this is what I got you for damn it (laughs) and Greg Vaughn did nothing and Chris Quinn comes on, and he's kind of like, oh, okay, well. And then Chris Quinn gets, gets the big hit. So that, that's my, my Chris Quinn story. What about the – so you did this, the champagne celebration? Yes, I did. And then I had to drive home. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, if I get stopped, <laughs> how do I explain this? <laughs> because this car, it, it reeked with champagne. <laughs> for days, days. You and I know that well doing uh, post-game Dodger talk, <laughs> champagne celebration, and then you and I have to come up and do two hours of Dodger talk. We're just sticky. <laughs> In fact, I remember there was one year when the Dodgers had a chance to clinch, and they did not, and so we did not get – sticky and full of champagne and driving home that night there was a dui checkpoint on sunset and i got pulled over and they looked at me and they realized that i was fine and let me go and i remember thinking if the dodgers had won tonight i would have had a lot of explaining to do yeah yeah and that's what i thought too because i was stopped a couple of times by that same dui thing and you know we would finish dodger talk and get out of the ballpark at one o'clock, one fifteen in the morning. So, you know, they're saying, "What are you doing here at one thirty in the morning?" You know, you're not at a bar. What, what are you doing here? I'm the host of Dodger Talk, and they, no one knew who I was. So it's not like I was ever recognized. Where somebody would say, "Oh man, yeah, I listen to you all the time." No, he was just like, "Oh, okay, that sounds like a good excuse." Speaking of being recognized, I'm going to share with the audience a story that I, that I shared with Ken. I don't know if you remember this, but I was, uh, I was going to this yoga studio, and one of the yoga instructors was trying to become a writer on the side. And there was one day that, I don't know, we were having coffee or tea or something, and, and we were just talking about writing. We had a mutual friend who had said that, that I used to be a writer, and now I'm doing this thing with the Dodgers that she didn't understand. And so I'm talking to this yoga instructor, and out of nowhere, she goes, you know, this is kind of random, but by any chance, have you ever heard of the guy Ken Levine? Because he has a really good blog, and I read it all the time. 
And I go, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have heard of Ken Levine. I sit next to him every night. We do a show every night together. <laughs> and by the way, I don't know if you'd like, I remember that you met with her, I want to say, Allie um, Laventhal, I think is her last name. And she's a writer now. She made it. She's totally doing a whole bunch of shows now. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah, hmm. she made it because of the advice that you gave her. Wow. How many different versions of now dog I can call her and see if she has a job for me? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Ask her if she has a job for me too. Yeah. Ken Levine, I, I I'm not familiar with the name. <laughs> That's Hollywood, bud. <laughs> right. You're who uh, again? Speaking of Dodger Talk, how many different versions of Dodger Talk did you do on different radio stations? Um, I was on three different radio stations doing Dodger Talk with uh, a myriad of partners. You're by far the best. Oh, Yeah, you're by far the best. One of my partners went on to become the president of the Arizona Diamondbacks. <laughs> Derek As Hall? Derek Hall, yeah. And what, did I, go, what did I go on to become? <laughs> And then Ross, Ross Porter was, uh, was my partner for a while. This guy, Jeff Witcher, who's a lovely guy, but has no sense of humor at all. See, you and I would bounce stuff off of each other. And I, I would be doing it with Jeff, and I would say something, and he would go, well, that's not funny. <laughs> it was like playing tennis against a blanket. How many other, uh, you did Oriole talk too. How many other major league versions of post-game name talk did you do? Um, just that. Just okay. that Orioles talk we would do during rain delays. That was one of the perks that uh, the Orioles gave to affiliates is that once you turn it over to us until it's over, we will take it. And so... I would have to do Orioles talk. And in some stadiums, you're not really well shielded, like Detroit or Chicago, and the rain is coming in on you. And we didn't have a computer. The engineer would slip pieces of paper, you know, and you go, okay, and here's uh, Josh from uh, Endicott City. And, and the rain would smear it. So this is, this is Jew from... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was, that was fun. Do you I ever have to do, you have to do, uh, during rain delays? There's, there's uh, no, um, topes talk. Topes talk. there's no topes talk during rain delays, but I do recall the night in San Diego of all places where there was three different rain delays. And so we did three different editions together of rain delay Dodger talk. And we still did a post game Dodger talk. Right. Well, there was one time in Baltimore was the end of the season, like the second to the last week, we're playing the Boston Red Sox. It's a three-game series. Game two gets rained out. So we're going to play a twilight doubleheader, game three, starting at 5 o'clock. It starts to rain. And the, um, the umpires are saying – we're playing these games. We're playing these games. So I had four hour <laughs> Orioles talk. No. 
Four this is hour, not a winning team. Talk. This is a below average Oriole team. Oh, and we lost 95 games that year, and we were already eliminated. Like, what the hell are you going to talk about? You know, fortunately, I was able to get Ken Kaiser, one of the umpires, came up and sat with me for like a half an hour doing stuff. But otherwise, so now we do the game. Now it's like 9 o'clock, and they said, and we're getting them both in. We're getting them both in. So I come on to do the third inning. John does the first and second. I come on to do the third inning. I said, you've heard all my anecdotes, guys. You've, you've heard all my anecdotes. I told this one at 6.30. So we do the, the first game. And then I have to do like the 20-minute between game you know, post-game show goes right into the pre-game show because it's all sponsored. And I'm the number two guy, so I have to do all that stuff. And, you know, when the second game starts, I'm now filling out my score sheet, you know, on the fly as the game's happening. So we're, we're doing the second game, and now I come on in the third inning, and it's like 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> and uh, and there's, there's nobody there. There's nobody there. And um, we finish the game. And then I have to do the full post-game show at like quarter of four. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, a, that was a rather long game. Long, long, long night of, of baseball. Which skill helps the crossover more? Does being a broadcaster help you more as a writer? Or does being a writer help you more as a broadcaster? Being a writer helps me more as a broadcaster because I look at ball games with a bigger picture. I look at ball games as to what is the story. And there's all the other stories going on within the story. And, um, you know, it's not just statistics and it's not just the play by play. The real interesting stuff is what's happening, you know, between the pitches and, and the story and the drama and all of the, the journeys that all of these guys are on. And, um, you know, when you follow a team for a full year, I mean, it's like a daily soap opera. And uh, that to me is the most interesting thing. And one thing during my checkered baseball announcing career that I would always do. <clears throat> if the last game of the season wasn't really important, you know, if it wasn't a game where we're still chasing the pennant, which other than one year in San Diego, <laughs> I never had that, both in the majors and the minors. For the last game of the season, um, I would write down the lineups and nothing else. And I would do absolutely no prep work. And I would spend the entire time just reflecting on the season, reflecting on the player and the problems that he had and the successes that he had and 
reminding me of stories that happened when we were in Omaha one time with this guy or being in a restaurant or whatever. Um, I just told stories because the games meant nothing anyway. And, and it, it was really fun. It was really fun. I'm totally stealing that idea. And as you were saying that, I'm, I was thinking to myself of how often I've done that. And I know that I have done that as I pat myself on the back here to a certain extent, but probably not with that level of detail. And I really just like, first of all, when you said you didn't write anything other than their names, I immediately started to get anxiety <laughs> because I feel <laughs> like, oh no, I'm not prepared. Oh no, I'm not prepared. But I think that that illustrates being comfortable with being uncomfortable and forcing yourself to try something new and not worry about these stats. And like you said, just tell stories. Right. Right. When I was practicing baseball announcing, I would like once every two weeks, I would take a game and the same thing. I would not write down any of the stats and I, I just used it as an exercise to be descriptive, to not just say there's a foul ball to left. It was there's a foul ball, second level, red section, third row, guy with a straw hat making the play. Um, and try to make every play call as descriptive as I could. And, um, and it, it really, I think, pays off you know, dividends in the long run, because you don't think about that necessarily. But when a play is happening, you know, I want my mind kind of like muscle memory to not just go ground ball to third, but to say two hops to third, backhanded at his hip, looping throw in time to get him. Just sounds better. Again, another idea that I'm going to steal. I was forced to do that once. I was broadcasting a game in Visalia, California. Oh, lovely. <laughs> they, uh, lovely Visalia. There is no roof for where the, it's not even a broadcasting booth. It's just a table and there, there's no canopy. There's nothing. And so in the summer, and it's 110 degrees, you get skin cancer and your equipment melts in front of you. But on one day, it was Those in games. <laughs> it was in April or May, and it starts to rain. And at first, it's just a little bit of rain. It's not too bad. And, uh, and whoever was the announcer for Visalia, he's covered, and he laughs, and he throws me a towel. And so I cover up the equipment because the equipment matters more than, than you do. And it starts to rain a little bit more. And it starts to rain a little bit more. And yet the game is still going on. And... At this point, I start to realize, at what point am I still expected to keep calling this game? But as you know, Ken, probably the most important thing that you have is your scorebook. And so if right. your scorebook gets wet, you're screwed the rest of the season. And so yeah. I, I put my scorebook underneath the table to keep it dry. And I didn't want my computer to get ruined. And so I put my computer underneath the table so that it would stay dry. And any notes that I had were already drenched at this point. And so I'm just trying to cover up the equipment. And again, I was forced to call just what I see. And what I saw was 20 people in the stands <laughs> and <it laughs> absolutely pouring. And this game was still going on. And so it was, I was, yeah, forced to describe. And I remember that I, that even to this day, sometimes I get in the bad habit of there's a ground ball to the shortstop and you look down 
to your kind of your cheat sheet, especially if it's the other team and it's game one of a series and don't quite have it memorized yet. And you kind of get in the habit of, of peeking down and cheating to see who's playing shortstop or who's playing right field. But when you don't have that, then it just really forces you to use your brain and remember who is in each one of these positions because I don't have any, I don't have notes. I have nothing around. Me. Yeah. I, I had a similar situation when I was doing the Mariners and we were in Tiger Stadium, the old Tiger Stadium, and it was raining and I was doing TV. And the booth is not really shielded well. And so they immediately put tarp over some of the their equipment. And, and I do the same thing where I put my scorebook down underneath and, and I, I just, I grab my microphone and I'm standing against the back wall calling this game. <laughs> you know, people are walking by and everything and I'm thinking to myself, I'm calling Major League Baseball game on television and I'm standing in a hallway. <laughs> yeah. Those are the stories you remember the most, though. Yeah. I will tell you, this is, and I'm going to mention this on my podcast in a couple of weeks, this story. The, um, you know, the nightmare that everybody has in their profession, okay? And it stems from college, where you, you have your finals, and you haven't studied, and you don't know the subject, and your life depends on it or whatever your job is. And of course, as a baseball announcer, it's like, okay, I get to the game and I don't know any of the players and I don't have any of the statistics and I have no idea what's going on. Well, the first Major League Baseball game I ever called, the year I was in Syracuse, um, I got to go up and fill in one night on the Toronto Blue Jays radio. So I did my two innings of Toronto Blue Jays radio <clears throat> and um, and then I was done. And so they tapped me on the shoulder and they said, like, a local TV station wants to interview you. This is like a great story. I said, okay. This was the old exhibition stadium. So we go up on the roof and they're interviewing me. And I'm hearing the game going on behind me and whatever, but I don't care. It's like my work is done. And then somebody comes up and says, hey, the Blue Jays TV guy would like to have him come in and say hello. I go, okay. So they take me down, and it's um, Don Chevier and Tony Kubek. And they're like 10 seconds before the commercial ends. And then they sit down, and I give me my headphones. Yeah, hey, nice to meet you guys and everything. And they come back on, and they go, hey, we have a real treat. We have uh, Ken Levine, who is the announcer for our Syracuse uh, affiliate here tonight. So, Ken, take it away. So, so I, I don't even know the score, <laughs> okay? I, I don't even know the score. <laughs> and <laughs> so it's like, well, okay, and now batting Chili Davis. Here's Chili Davis. <laughs> Okay, and I'm trying to to fake my way through this, and and I'm not even sure it's like the same pitcher, and and, I, and I'm I go whoa that's a really good slider, and uh, you know uh, 
Tony Kubek would say, um, yeah, Steve still has this good slider. And I think, oh, okay, Steve is still <laughs> You know, but, and I'm looking up on the scoreboard. It's like, oh, <laughs> Toronto's leading now. <laughs> so I call this half inning, and I have no idea <laughs> what was happening. I couldn't say, and uh, here's – Here's Jim Edmonds, who tripled in. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. So that was like the actual, you know, because I thought what they were going to do is just uh, chat with me. And so who's looking good down in Syracuse and that kind of crap. I don't know. They're going to have me do the goddamn play-by-play. So what's the advice you're going to give on the podcast on what happens when you're caught about ready to take a final exam and you don't know anything about the subject? <laughs> Fake it as best you can. <laughs> Plus, this is this is the Toronto Blue Jays, which is being broadcast all over Canada. <laughs> no pressure. This is like the coast-to-coast national broadcast. And the Blue Jays were pretty good that year. And this was like July. So, you know, people were actually watching this game. Um, yeah, that was... <laughs> that was fun. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're only supposed to get 40 minutes on Zoom, and we're way past that. So I have no idea if we've even been recording for the last hour or whatever. But uh, we could keep going on forever. But um, I'm going to leave it right there. And uh, But tell people about your blog and your podcast. If they're listening to this, they probably already know. But plug it anyways, please. Well, the podcast is uh, called Hollywood and Levine. And it's available wherever podcasts are. And uh, the blog is called bykenlevine.com. You can just go to Google Ken Levine blog and it'll take you right to it. And I've been doing that for 15 years. 15 uh, years now. 15 years, yeah. It's it's unbelievable. I'm an idiot. And uh, the podcast, I'm in my fourth year. That's fantastic. Well, this was so much fun. Um, I can't believe that it's almost been 10 years since we've done some type of broadcasting uh, together. Yeah. That's crazy. But thank you for coming on. And I said at the beginning, you're like my radio dad. And I mean that I learned so much from you. It was so much fun. Those three years, I feel like my knowledge of, of so many things in radio is because I got lucky enough to work with you and I just learned so much. So well, thank you for I that. appreciate it. I appreciate it. Likewise, you learned what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Ken, be good. And uh, once again, it's great to see you and, uh, and talk to you. You too. That's Ken Levine, and this is Life Around the Seams.